0: your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are in week eight of year two and walking through um, into the prophets this week, as well as uh, continuing in Mark and uh, yeah. So I'm excited. I'm excited to move into the prophets. I always like this section of scripture that uh, I feel like many of us in church life don't tend to read much of. And so, um, Well, we
1: uh, will spend just about a year in them, so true. you'll get to enjoy we, we them a lot. We tend to nitpick
0: those little <laughs> Jesus-y passages and go, oh, yeah, I like those passages like in Isaiah. But, um, yeah, there's a wealth uh, to be had in, in some of these prophets. But let's keep Going in 2 Kings 13, first. And we continue. Yeah, we continue. I feel like whenever there's a phrase blank reigns in Israel, it's never going to be a good story. Um, And so we find out there's another king who is wicked. And uh, God allows the Assyrians basically to come along and wipe out the armies. And at some point, this king does have some moment of repentance in some ways. At least he calls out for help. and, And Yahweh it seems moved noticing the oppression and the struggle um, that the Israelites are experiencing and, and sends this unnamed savior to this non-repentant group for the most part provides salvation, but yet we don't see that much change for the people.
1: Yeah. It made me think of the Psalm we read this week, actually, and that we see um these wicked kings being used by God as judgment towards Israel, but also a reminder that when people call out to God, he shows up. We are never far from the deliverance of God or his steadfast love, his faithfulness. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And it's, it's only based upon God's remembering, not the merit because they've shown their total obedience. Uh, and so it's a, it's a total picture of grace for God to show up with this sort of unnamed savior, which becomes such a picture of Christ to me. Uh, and then we find out there's another terrible King, um, Jehoash, who is also bad.
1: Yeah. And not only did he walk in evil sins, but he made Israel to sin as well.
0: Yep. Yep. And then, sadly, we get to the death of Elisha, which is this weird story that you guys probably enjoyed reading this week, and uh, Elisha's dying, and Joash goes out to visit, and he seems really actually grieved about Elisha. Maybe he's kind of asking for sort of a last blessing or something from Elisha here, and Elisha tells him, okay, shoot this arrow out these east window, um, and it ends up sort of having this symbol of their win over Aram, or the win that the will have. Um, but then the next step, sort of shooting the ground, apparently... We'll tell how many victories and it was hard. Like commentators were all over the place, not even reading it. I'm like, should Josh know he should have done more than three. He was never instructed about that. And should he have been just been fired up and like gone to town and shot a bunch of arrows? Was this a sign that he's half hearted? Was it a trick by Elisha? Would it have mattered? Would Elisha still would have answered? I I don't know, but no matter what, Joash should have shot the ground more and the fact that he only shot it three times means he's only going to end up with three victories and will end up getting decimated in the end and then elisha dies and as they go to bury him some dead body randomly falls into his tomb and comes back to life somehow Uh, it's sort of elisha's last miraculous act here and this man comes to life um yeah
1: Yeah, which is a great connection uh, to Christ in this, you know, again, we talked about Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha, and then this parallel to John the Baptist in Christ, we won't see another one like this. And so this idea of resurrection, uh, even over Elisha's dead body, should cause us to think of Christ and the resurrection that we gain after he died.
0: Yep. There's certainly, certainly parallels there.
1: Yeah. And I also, just the other comment here is that we continue to see God preserving the kingdom of Israel and his faithfulness. He specifically says is because of his promise to Abraham and because of his promise to Jehu to keep four generations on the throne. So he's chosen to not fully wipe out the, the Northern kingdoms of Israel yet.
0: Yet. Uh, And Amaziah reigns in Judah. So um, the Southern Kings are uh, sometimes a little different than their Northern counterparts. And Amaziah is good he's not great but he's good um or at least he's described that way initially and he takes out his father's murders he also takes out a bunch of edomites but um his initial victories also cause him to be quite prideful Mm -hmm. thinking oh i can i could take out anybody challenges the kingdom north the kingdom north is almost like yeah i don't think you want to pick a fight with me and uh and they meet anyways and amaziah is basically just destroyed in the process he gets kidnapped in northern kingdom destroy some walls take some hostages and that's it for amaziah
1: yeah it's a good morning to us to watch out for pride you know two different times in the new testament it says god opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble and we do not want to be opposed by god we need to ask god for humility and you know just because you or i have trusted in god once doesn't mean we'll do it again we've got to continually seek the lord and continually humble ourselves before the lord
0: Yep. And so, uh, Joash dies in the north. Jeroboam the second reigns in his place. And Jeroboam, well, uh, being named after uh, the initial terrible king to the north who set up the golden calves is probably not the best start, uh, in terms of our perception of this king. And he's yeah. described as wicked. Um, and, uh, but during this time, Israel expanded its borders, it started taking back its cities. Jonah was a prophet, kind of speaking these things. And I'm sure, I'm sure the Northern national pride was through the roof at this time thinking we're great. We're restoring Israel. Not a lot of sentences or conversation about repentance and returning to the Lord, right. uh, but hey, they're at least making Israel great again. And so there should be like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge about the prophet Jonah here.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we see God using an evil king to save Israel from destruction. It's not the first time that this has happened, but we can be reminded that the mercy of God isn't limited by human power or even human motivations, that all leaders, whether we see them as good or wicked, are subservient to God's sovereign will and plan.
0: And so, uh, let's jump into the prophets. We're entering the world of prophetic literature. Uh, and I just want to talk about that a little bit before we get into Amos specifically. Um, I think some of us think of the prophets as like these crystal ball readers. They're so future oriented. No one knows what they're talking about the hundreds of years later when everything comes to pass. Um, and, and it's probably best more to think of them as, as messengers of God and, and, and they bring a, a present tense message to a present tense crowd. There's there's a present reason that they are speaking to these crowds. Now, that's not to say they don't include stuff that sometimes is about the future. Sometimes it's about how things are going to play out if they don't obey or with something along those lines. Um, but, but they often include these present messages. It's not as if most of the crowd hears these words going i don 't understand what that means, maybe sometime in the future it 'll totally make sense no that they, they tend to have a context for what they 're saying and why they 're saying, and, and the audience would hear it and and, and understand some part of it uh, for them. Uh, additional meanings sometimes do become revelatory in the future, uh, but we shouldn 't jump there sometimes without understanding, okay, like if you were an Israelite and you heard this whole section so let 's take the the suffering servant uh, which we we often connect with Jesus, and the New Testament writers certainly do, but an Old Testament crowd would have also sat there and gone, oh, this servant is actually about Israel and we're the suffering servant. So there, there was context of how they would understand that. And it's not necessarily wrong, and, and maybe it comes to full light with Jesus, but sometimes um, we lose the point of maybe what the prophet's really after and in, in who who they're teaching and why uh, by, by sometimes jumping all the way to Jesus right away. Uh, and I want to caution as you read through the prophets to, to be sure not to always do that. Um,
1: yeah, I think something interesting that Chris and I were talking about before we got on the podcast is just how the prophets tend to show up when there is not a king or a priest to lead Israel to follow God. And so as you read, you'll notice a lot of what they're saying is just like reiterating what is true about God and what is true about the law and what is true about what God promised in those first five books of the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of times, yeah, just pointing out their own issues (laughs) and calling them to repentance and saying if they don't repent, this is going to go really bad for for you, Yeah, Um, which is not a, 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 a totally odd thing to say. Um, I When we made the outline for this, the, the, the prophets ended up sort of being grouped um, by the context of the content. Um, what I mean by that is that there's endless debates on when these prophets actually got written onto paper, when they got formalized, when they got finalized, who the original authors are. That there's, there's a whole wealth of scholarship to deal with that. But each prophet has a sort of time period that they are focused on with a, um, or some, run the gamut like Isaiah, but most have like, um, a time period maybe right before captivity or when the Babylonians are there or when they're with the Persians like there's there's these sort of time frames um, and so we'll talk about that as we go but each prophet um, has kind of been put uh, where that time frame is not necessarily where scholarship necessarily always thinks that when the actual finalized version got written but but who contextually they were meant to be written to which makes more sense literally as you kind of read through um, read through each and so we'll point out kind of of maybe what the Kings are there in focus or the context and stuff as we go. Um, and it's also remember that every prophet, there's not one of these prophetic books that doesn't include at least one verse, um, that, that becomes this tiny little moment of hope. Uh, some are are few and far between. Some have a lot more hope like Isaiah certainly gets hopeful by the end. Um, but but there's, there's always a promise or a positive sort of thing slipped into it. Even the book of Lamentations has that. I know it's not prophetic, but even that has this moment kind of slipped in. And so the prophets are also in that same vein.
1: Yeah, the message of the prophets, we oftentimes see three different uh, things that they're emphasizing. One is judgment for sin, which isn't hard to find. Uh, the second is mercy for sinner. And the third is restoration of God's people. And so some of those do comprise that hope piece. Yeah. But it doesn't mean they're not going to emphasize the judgment piece, which, yeah. which leads to hope, but we'll get there.
0: Yeah. Some only have like one or two lines of hope in their whole book. So like um, Amos, for yeah. example. <laughs> like Amos. Um, and so Amos, uh, as our first prophet we're encountering, uh, is directed certainly at the northern kingdom uh, and um, and thematically kind of tied and directed at them kinda before uh, they eventually will get conquered by the Assyrians, which we'll get to historically as we read. Um, and it's a call for them to return their ways. There's a lot of indictments about their treatment. And and there's definitely an emphasis around how they care for the poor, um, their oppression of others. Violence is certainly in their indulgence, uh, is in there as well. Um, and there's some great imagery throughout the book, especially later in the book. Um, there become these ideas of ripe fruit uh, that's ready to be thrown away, um, or ideas like a plumb line that like God has set this plumb line. The plumb line was straight and it was right, but they're crooked and these good images that, that become, um, I think, good themes towards the end of the book.
1: Yeah, something neat about Amos is that it's just got a very clear structure in order to the book. You hear about judgments against nations, judgment against Israels, and there's a lot of different words like, hear the word of the Lord, and that um, indicates a new section, or certain woes. And just remember as you read that what you are reading also is poetry. So Chris did mention a lot of that imagery. We also see lion and earthquake and fire imagery, but it's all meant to communicate this overall idea of um, how the judgment of God shows no favoritism. It's not like because you are in the line of Abraham, you aren't going to be come under his judgment for your sin. So that's a big emphasis that we see in Amos.
0: So let's dive in. Uh, and I hope as you were reading through it, that you were almost kind of lulled to sleep by this sort of repetitive condemnation of all of Israel's neighbors there at the beginning where um, it's sort of like, and this neighbor did this and this neighbor is getting judged. And, and the three then four of three um, is the number of wholeness or completeness Adding one more would be like, because of an overflow of sins, this is happening. That's sort of three, then four refrain that's um, meant to convey that. And, and so, uh, out of an overflow of sins for this neighbor, this is the judgment coming. And this, and it actually, uh, if you open up a map, I'll include actually a link to a map. Um, that as you as you look at each country, you actually get closer and closer in uh, to Judah and Israel as you go. And the initial readers are probably hearing this, going, "Yeah, those Edomites, they're the worst, and yeah, those those people in Damascus, they're terrible, and and they deserve it." And it's such a setup for them because uh, eventually it, it's like, and Judah and the Israelites are probably like, "Oh." Like that's a little hitting a little closer to home there. Like we don't get the sense that Israel is necessarily all that big of a fan of Judah, but they're still brothers. Uh, and then it starts uh, coming in on them as they're going.
1: Yeah, and here we start out with this imagery of God being a, uh, the Lord roaring like a lion from Zion and uh, coming in judgment with fire. Now, we know fire is both for consuming and it's also for purifying, which we'll hit on later. But I think ultimately. You know, we see his judgment on these wicked nations, but we also see his mercy, and that some of this judgment has been delayed for hundreds of years. And I think for us in our modern context, God's judgment can be difficult for us to come to terms with. We have a hard time reconciling that with it being a good God. But I think we should just pause for a moment and consider the behaviors of these nations as well that are bringing about God's wrath. You know, social justice is a really popular phrase inside and outside the church these days, and everyone loves Amos because it's a social justice oriented book. Uh, and that's really exactly what we're seeing here. God is bringing about justice for the oppressed and the marginalized. And how should we respond as we see about this justice coming? Well, I mean, I don't know that we should delight in anyone getting what they deserve as people who have been saved by grace, uh, but we should humble ourselves. We should mourn the oppression of many and we should uh, mourn in some ways the wrath of the wicked, but also ask God to bring about that justice and righteousness for those who have been oppressed.
0: Yeah, yeah. All all six foreign nations. The the themes are that they pursued wealth and land and power and no regard to individuals along the way, and that that becomes part of the the condemnation that uh, Israel is about to have as part of their um, play out in this book as well.
1: Yeah, those uh, those sins that they're getting judged for. Just you know, keep paying attention because it might hit a little close to home as well for yeah. modern day.
0: And so Judah uh, certainly gets their condemnation specifically, uh, and theirs is tied into uh, the law of the Lord. There was no expectation of the law of the Lord on those foreign nations. But now for Judah, their their issue, their real problem is that they've rejected uh, the law of the Lord itself.
1: Yeah, which is really interesting because almost every other judgment or every other emphasis is centered around behavior and treatment of people or you know, the pursuit of wealth, and Judah's is around rejecting God's law. And I think that has to do something with with the line of David and the, and the purpose and call of priests still having a role in Judah. And of course, if we follow the law, we will honor and respect others. But that is interesting.
0: Yeah, it, it is. Interesting cause it feels like the, the condemnation is not around rejecting Yahweh himself, but the condemnation is around rejecting the way that Yahweh has called them to live and really yeah. what becomes a play out of this book too. Um, and so, Yeah, Israel comes around, and it's interesting because so much of what we read about Israel so far has been Baal worship and Asherah poles and all this kind of stuff that's going on in the Northern Kingdom, and and yet the focus certainly seems uh, to be on their… Uh, actions towards others, um, which is certainly indicative of the things they worship. Um, but, but Amos has a honed in uh, connection here to the oppression of the poor around garments taken in pledges or wine of those who have been fined or, or taxed for it. Um, and God reminds them like, look, like I, I brought you out of Egypt. Like, and and yet, even even those I'm sending to you, like there's Nazarites and prophets, those who actually desire to be obedient to me, yet you're causing the Nazarites to drink and you're rejecting my prophets. And I'm at the breaking point with you guys there in Israel. And when I snap, it's not going to be pretty. And so um, he's bringing this all up for them.
1: Yeah, it seems like landing on Israel is kind of hitting the bullseye here. And with that, uh, again, the structural language of for three transgressions and for four, we see that Israel is put into the same category as all of these other kingdoms that Israel thinks that maybe they're not going to be like them or that are different than them. And I think the heart of what we're getting here is, like what Chris mentioned, is... um, when we worship a false god, we will become like that god. And when we worship Yahweh, our Lord, we will become like him. And so um, Israel has become like the false gods they worship in oppressing people and engaging in illicit sexual behavior uh, tied to their syncretistic religious practices. And syncretistic is like um, practicing worship of, of Yahweh, but also worshiping a lot of other gods, combining all of those worship things. So I step back and consider yourself what are you becoming like what behaviors do you model yourself after um or emulate and it just it really caused me to kind of reflect and consider where i am becoming more like god that i follow through his word and where i'm becoming more like the world around me Uh, because we see what's happened to israel as they've started to worship other gods
0: yep so um God reminds them again that he brought them out and he brought them out to be their God and then their people like there, there was this partnership, this arrangement. Uh, but, but God ultimately says, look, you're not doing what I've called you to be. You've forgotten the point of the whole story of what I've called you into. And there's consequences to that. And, and the lines were, God has spoken. Like he's, he's saying like, this isn't, i this shouldn't catch you by surprise. Like this is, this is me giving I've given you a warning, and this is a warning again in this moment. And he says, like, look, take a look. There's robbery. There's oppression. And God will tear down these golden calves, this luxurious living that you're living in these mansions and, and other things. And there won't be much left. It'll be like a, a shepherd holding parts of this ravaged sheep. It's kind of this grotesque picture of like, like a leg or an ear, and that's all he's got left uh, because God has responded. Um, and then speaks to the women that are like cows of Bashan, which isn't necessarily to speak of their physical appearance. Um but the cows of Bashan were these um were these fattened cows, but fattened cows because they lived um they, they were given this luxurious piece of land with extra everything uh per se. They were meant to be fattened up, this sort of life of luxury and abundance. Um that was sort of the picture. And in a life of abundance. Um let's just say in every country, and, and this is where the Sarah's I think kind of hinting at in every country, a life of abundance always comes on the back of something, Uh, and uh, whether it's the backs of poor, or oppressed, or enslaved, or whatever it is, and um, this is this is the indictment here. And and I think this will be a little sermonette, not normal for this podcast, but um, what how how you live out reflects the God that you worship, and um, I think sometimes we disconnect hearing these prophets talk about Baal, or talk about this Asherah or talk about any of this sort of worship, um, and think, well, like, well, I don't do that. Um, and yet, um, there's also the God of building many empires and the God of consumerism and the God of getting things at a cheap price and not realizing that, um, there's slave labor behind it and all these kind of things. And, and maybe there's gods we worship, um, that are, um, as dangerous or as similar uh, to these um, to these practices that we find Israel in, uh, and maybe Amos should be challenging some of our comfortability, um, our comforts uh, in this process.
1: Yeah, this should be a really sobering section to read, and it's—I mean, it's most of chapter three and a little bit of chapter four. But we do see God coming back as this uh, lion imagery here, and He's a kind of a predator, and these people the people who are coming under his judgment are tiny bits of prey left behind. But I think the central focus really of probably this whole book is verse two of chapter three that says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Israel was given the word of God to steward and to be a priesthood to all nations. And instead they became oppressors and God or Amos, God through Amos, I guess gets into a lot of detail describing that wickedness and um, and I don't know I agree with what Chris is saying we're a really wealthy nation and our wealth and our comfort has come on the oppression of others whether through slavery here in the United States or consuming things made by slaves globally in modern day we oppress the vulnerable in our consumption of pornography even so while we as Christians are citizens of another country we're kind of that remnant we should be cautious not to read ourselves into the wrong part of the story here
0: yeah certainly um and it's interesting God God will remind them again um that that he has been the one behind things like famines and droughts and plagues and um and he says look these were all opportunities for you here in the north to realize that like I'm your God and I'm uh, he is the god of of just enough the god of provision the provider the one to turn to uh, and understand that that every really good gift comes from him and uh, it seems like they never learn their lesson that um that they were always happy with abundance and when they didn't have things they didn't necessarily turn back uh, to God in the process and so um he's he's giving this sort of look, I've been here all along giving you this warning. So um, you just have never learned your lesson. So prepare to meet your God.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it makes me think of the verse in Hebrews 12 that talks about how God disciplines us for our good. Um, And he warns us and we see through hardship he wants to bring us back to him. And he doesn't, discipline us or give us hardship to be mean, but because it's what's best for us. So we've got to pause and consider the compassion of God in this. He does not give up on Israel. He does not abandon Israel. And he continues to pursue Israel when everything they do is against him. Uh, This is a dark book with a lot of dark things in it, but it is also just dripping with compassion and love.
0: So let's jump to Mark, uh, and we start off with the story of Jesus and this paralytic, this unnamed man who doesn't even have a line of dialogue. Uh, but uh, we talked about this a little bit in the Matthew section. There's some peculiarities in the story, like we do know nothing about the paralytic faith. We just know the faith of his friends who think Jesus can provide some sort of healing for him. And yet the fascinating thing, as hard as they've worked to lower this guy into this room, Jesus's first statement is not like, hey, like, okay, I'll provide healing for you or go ahead and walk. He doesn't say that. He says, son your sins are forgiven, which still leaves the paralytic man on his mat. And I don't know what else uh, it, it accomplishes for him. And I'm sure everybody's like, uh, that's not why he's here. Um, and yet uh, the, the, it certainly stirs the controversy for these Pharisees who uh, recognize that, that it's really God. And Mark actually goes out of his way to point it out when Matthew doesn't. It's really only God who can truly say that, um, that it's an easy thing to say, but versus an actual healing, physical healing. Like I can say my sins are forgiven. Um, but at the same time, they, they understand the, the theology there. They understand uh, sort of the blasphemous sort of statement. It should Jesus be just a normal guy. And, and yet he's saying this. And it's interesting because the son of man analogies uh, or his phrasing doesn't don't exist a ton. They do in the, in the gospels, but they're very much at specific points. And this story always includes this connection to the idea of son of man, which, in their day, Son of Man was sort of this vengeance type character, judgment type character, whether the, the Son of Man connection to Daniel, whether it's Son of Abel or Son of uh, Adam, which which had this Abel connection that Abel was going to return and have vengeance on uh, the sins and the wickedness of Cain. And so there was very much this idea that the Son of Man was going to be about vengeance and judgment. And the very fact that Jesus is here going, look, I, I am here to teach you about forgiveness and I'm here to be the forgiving one, the reconciling one. Like that is my work here, not coming in vengeance. And it becomes, I would argue for the next few stories, kind of the theme that we're going to run with.
1: Yeah. I really love the advocacy of this guy's friends or his family in this story, What moved Jesus was their faith, not even the paralytic's faith. So think in your own life, who needs healing? Who needs salvation? Who needs prayer? And in the faith that God has given you, take this person to Jesus and ask that that person may find healing. And remember also that God used this specific circumstance to illustrate a different point about his authority to forgive sins. Oftentimes, I think we want a miracle for ourselves or expect that it centers around us, but God may use difficult or great, easy circumstances in our lives, not for ourselves, but for others.
0: Yeah. And right on the heels of the sort of, uh, Jesus saying, I'm, I'm basically, I'm here for the forgiveness of sin less above. Like we, we get to see just how radical this forgiveness goes. Uh, and I mean, the, the paralytic is tragic because of the effects of sin, things like that. But Levi is someone who has actively chosen mm-hmm. a, a rejection of his people to coincide with or to work with, um, Rome and, and the oppressors and all this kind of stuff. And so in the eyes of most of his audience, like Levi's a pretty bad guy. Um, And, and, and yet Jesus is like, look, this is what forgiveness, this is the extent of forgiveness can go. Um, and then of course, when they go back to Matthew's house, who are all Matthew's friend, it's like the rest of the people that have been rejected and cast out, uh, by the Pharisees and leaders and company here. And so, uh, they're probably just as surprised as anybody that a rabbi would come and interact on, let alone have table fellowship, which is like the deepest form of, of, um, sharing life in some ways for for this culture of hospitality. And so um, Jesus' simple yet hard lesson that I think he's driving mm-hmm. home is that those who are really sick, which are those who are broken or desperate or marginalized outside, like that's who I'm here for. And um, those those that are in that righteous category, like the Pharisees, like you don't get it. You, you don't understand it, it's almost like we just read in Amos where it's like, um look this 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 brokenness, this this judgment is really upon any everybody and until you get that and are ready to to be healed, like that's what I'm here for,
1: yeah you know we we talk about Amos being a social justice book, but really all of the Bible is a is a book about justice and injustice and uh, loving others like we like we should and that so we see Jesus right away not spending his time with the influential and wealthy people but with the poor and those with who have nothing to give in return or those who are on the margins and so if i talk about wanting to live like jesus lived i need to be doing this more as well
0: yeah. And then we get questions about fasting. Um, and, and once again, there's tons of Jeremiah in this parable. Uh, the images of a bridegroom being taken away, sewing a cloth back on, wide skids are all found in that book. Um, and so, um, contextually, Jeremiah and in each of those actual stories ties into this idea about how Israel is struggling to treat the poor and the outsider and these kind of things. And so, once again, if we're, for picking up on Jesus kind of teaching like, okay, like I am here about compassion and Mercy and in these kind of things, um, I, I think what Mark's including here is, is once again this idea of like, look, the Son of Man is actually here. Yes, and He's not come to bring judgment. He's or condemnation. He's actually in here to provide forgiveness, to invite the outsider in, to do just as what God has always instructed us to do. So let's celebrate while I'm here. Like that's why we don't fast. Like I am here uh, to, for this reconciling work, but. I will be going away. And just like Jeremiah spoke about, there will be judgment upon those who reject me, reject my teaching, reject this way of life that God has actually called us to.
1: So we read in the first verse of Mark chapter 1 that part of Mark's argument here in this whole book is to prove Jesus is God. And I think we see Jesus being proved as God through the fact that they're not fasting. We fast on earth to remember that all is not as it should be. And our physical hunger is meant to remind us that we are hungry to live fully and completely in God's presence. So when the disciples were fully and completely in the presence of God, um, they didn't have to fast.
0: Yep. And so uh and then we get in these conversations about Sabbath uh, which was already a controversy in uh Jesus's day and the disciples um this something that was certainly debated, uh, is, is what is work. And, uh, yes, you couldn't harvest work certainly on that day, like you would harvest a field, but, um, it, they became some of the law became very restrictive, uh, oral law, not the, not the Torah itself, uh, restrictive around, um, what, what to do about those who want to pick grains in the field. Is that harvesting? Is that work? Is it not, uh, something that was totally allowed by the Torah, uh, they started defining as a violation of Sabbath. And so Jesus uses the story of David and Abiathar and essentially Jesus is laying out that story, um, asking the question of going, what is the Sabbath actually for? Basically, is, is the Sabbath all about obedience and restriction and all these kind of things? Or is the Sabbath about your rest and your joy and loving God, loving people? And, and Jesus is pointing them to like, look, Sabbath is a gift for you. It's like a, a taste of shalom, taste of the peace of God, a picture of what's to come, not this picture of rigid obedience. And so you've missed the point of what the Sabbath is actually about.
1: Yeah, it's a gift and it's an invitation. It's an invitation to spend a work a day ceasing from work and to really imitate God himself as creator when God rested the seventh day. And um, like fasting, I think there's a connection there. It's a looking forward to our eternal rest that we'll have in the new heavens and the new earth. So the Pharisees had become really legalistic about Sabbath and they were destroying the heart of it. But I think we in modern day swing to the license side of it and, and really neglect practicing it altogether. So I'd be wary of saying and criticizing the Pharisees for being... Being in the wrong When we may also be in the wrong For neglecting to practice it at all
0: and um, we get, get a, a similar story, not a similar, but a, a thematically another story about uh, the Sabbath. And there were certainly debates about uh, what what to do on the Sabbath um, and and whether or not this this could be allowed. Um, but once again, the question from Jesus it's like: Is the Sabbath for good? Is it not for healing? Like, yes, yeah, yeah. like that's what the Sabbath is for. That is what the gift of the Sabbath is about. And the, and the leaders are uh, kind of losing the point of, of of what the Sabbath is about. And and maybe to. Me, I mean, it might tie into even their view of God. Is God the, the God of rules? And if so, then then they've made the Sabbath about that. Or is the God about, about um joy and 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 creating things that are good and rest and all these kind of things? And if your God's about that. Then you've caught the point probably of Sabbath as well.
1: Yeah. We see the Pharisees caring much more for roles than for people. And it's interesting to me in that they're like all up in arms about Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath. And yet they have no problem with planning the death of someone on the Sabbath because they go out and start to plan the death of Jesus. And you can just see how distorted their view and understanding was on God.
0: Yeah. And, and if, if the message of inviting the outsider is not enough, uh, we hear about this great crowd uh, that follows Jesus and its people from all over, uh, certainly Jews and Gentiles as well, including people across the Jordan, which are a bunch of very uh, uh, dirty, down, looked down upon uh, Gentiles at the time, people from Tyre and Sidon. And ultimately, it's it's sort of this lesson that like Jesus' authority is not just for the insider. He has authority and it utilized, it could drive out demons and to heal people even from the outside. It's
1: Yeah, it made me think back to what we talked about earlier with only the sick needing the physician. Everyone who needs healing needs is drawn to jesus and wants to meet him and then we see the fulfillment of this isaiah 61 passage about the spirit of the lord god is on him to bind up the brokenhearted and heal those wounds
0: and so jesus uh chooses his 12 um and they're a pretty disjointed unique collection of guys that uh, would not naturally hang out with each other yet jesus calls them into fellowship together he calls them basically like into a family in a lot of ways together Uh, and that's why i think we get the immediate transition to this whole idea of family and um, mm-hmm. the, the sort of comparison of his family, quote unquote, of disciples and then his biological family that shows up and yet rejects him, thinks he's crazy.
1: Yeah. And we see the apostles task to kind of be with Jesus, to be sent out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And we'll see that fulfilled you know, through the rest of the gospel. And also we see it in the book of Acts.
0: And so Jesus is is driving a demons, but yet the leaders at some point are just accusing him, thinking that he's working with uh, the demon or Satan himself. And Jesus points out at first, just the obvious flaws that are thinking like, what. That makes no sense basically <laughs> Jesus is like and, and not only that but Jesus is like look I, and not only that like I'm not just in cahoots with some other guy like I am the strongest in the story if you're if you're thinking that I can do this like I'm clearly the strong man uh, and stronger than the devils or the demons or Satan himself otherwise I couldn't do this and, and so and in these sort of second temple times uh, the, the real belief is only God is the one who could drive out demons and so Mark is certainly making the connection here that Jesus um, is the demon driver outer um, but then the sort of follow-up lesson, I think, is the greater lesson from the story. And so, as, as 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 these people are watching God do a move where He is releasing people from demonic possession, something that God can only do. And 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 they're being set free from Satan's work and all this kind of stuff, and yet they're sitting here looking at it all and going, "Yeah, that that's demonic and that's the work of Satan." So in context, when Jesus starts talking about them and talking about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and stuff like that, they are watching. These people are watching the Holy Spirit do tremendous acts of releasing people from darkness, and they're sitting there calling it demonic, and and, and that's not okay. Like Jesus, is like that, you're 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 speaking wrong about. You're totally missing the move of the spirit because you have this little box of how the spirit needs to work and how things should work. And you're calling it wicked when it's the move of God itself. And, and it challenges me sometimes to be like, all right, when I'm critical of of, of streams of Christianity or, 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 or certain things that I don't always understand and I don't always get, and it's not necessarily a clear, like, Here's the teaching, and here's where they're wrong. But I, I just don't get it. And sometimes I'll, I'll dismiss it, and I need to be cautious. Exactly, um, maybe dismissing or talking bad about something that God may be absolutely in and doing work. Um, and and I, yeah, it just causes me to be a little more cautious on how I speak of things that might be movements of the Holy Spirit.
1: Yeah, I think that the lesson going along with that is that God at work may feel confusing to us. We don't always know what's going to happen at the end of the story. Uh, We can't always understand if it it doesn't fit into our box of what God should and shouldn't be doing. Um, But be patient and be at peace with the sovereignty and the goodness of God, even when it doesn't make sense.
0: And We come back around to this idea of family, uh, and Jesus is uniquely and substantially redefining the idea of family. in you know, a culture at the time where family was just about everything, and is so significant. It's like um, they're they're sort of thinking that Jesus is bringing shame upon their household, and Jesus kind of turns the table on them um, and, and says, "Well, it's only those who would do the will of my father, my family. Like these disciples and these people around me, they are my family." Uh, and 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 this connects still to this whole idea. I mean, I don't know if we've explicitly talked on this podcast about it, um, uh, of the Mark and sandwich ideas that, that there's all these sections throughout Mark, um, that don't function exactly like a chiasm, but there's, uh, two things. And then the middle story sometimes brings context to, to these two things that are, um, on the other sides of it, like a sandwich, uh, like the bread, um, that, uh, have, have parallels or similarities. And so, um, in, in this, in this text, like you just had all these conversations about rejection and, and then, Jesus uses this idea of family and people who do the will of the father. And it's basically like, look, there are those who reject me who, who are not my family. And there are those who do my will, who are my family. Um, and, and, and the sort of um, this invitation in uh, to what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus is to be a part of a family, which is a, a, a new uh, idea that, 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 your family would be those who uh, you follow Jesus together as not this biological idea, which would have carried a lot of weight at the time.
1: yeah, it's a hard thing for us to come to terms with and reconcile. I think the idea of your church and your yeah, your church and your Christian community being your family, is probably comes pretty naturally to people who are living under persecution because it's all they have. But for us in the United States where we don't have a lot of that, it's harder for us to see and make sacrifices for and commitments to our church community as family. But I think really at the end of the day, the loss that comes from us not doing that is our own. We are missing out on just the beauty of an intimacy of really sweet fellowship with the family of God when we when we consider others to be family.
0: And we get our first parable out of, um, out of Mark. And Mark, uh, is much less heavy on the parables as, as someone that Matthew is. Uh, but we get a few throughout his gospels, including, uh, this one. Uh, and even when we get them, we don't always get as much wordiness or, uh, teaching as Matthew gives us. And so, uh, yeah, we, we hear about the sower, the, the spreading of the seeds, the four different soils, those kind of things. And so, um, yeah, I, I think the same application point is true even in the truncated version Mark gives us where, um, It is about uh, those who receive the word, take it in, spend time with it, thinking about it, listening to it, knowing it, uh, and and, and in a way that produces fruit from it too. Uh, And so, um, yeah.
1: You know, the way that Jesus describes the purpose of the parables kind of shows us that they're meant in a way to kind of sift out those who aren't really interested in knowing God. There is a cost to following Him. And if you're not even interested enough to seek out or to understand a parable then he's kind of saying, well, you're not truly going to follow me. Uh, and on the other hand, this parable shows us what a ripe and fruitful seed is. And it's those who hear the word and accept the word and also bear the fruit, putting it into action, yeah. which is, I mean, it's, it's simple to understand. And it's so hard to put into practice.
0: Yeah. And so Psalm 89, at least uh, 17 verses out of the middle of it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, again, kind of funny. Uh, I think we just see the faithfulness of God. He's never going to remove his steadfast love no matter what. And it also points us, of course, to perfection in Christ and fulfilling that.
0: Yeah, and given what we have read through the Southern Kingdom, like God God has elected David and his line, and even when his line is inconsistent or rejecting him, God is faithful to finish it. And so, um, yeah, we watch that take place. All right, next week.
1: Uh, So like I said, Amos is a dark book, but remember that Judgment, is evangelical there's always hope and there's always opportunities to return to god restoration comes after the suffering Um, and so anticipate that as you wrap up amos and look for it near the end of the book especially those hope components and the other thing i'd say to look for is there's lots of themes to the plagues in the exodus so pay attention or just exodus themes in general pay attention to that Um, And in the New Testament, we'll see a series of miracles coming up at the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, where Jesus shows that he is Lord over a lot of different capacities or areas. So look at those areas. See if you can find the themes and the connections in those stories.
0: Yeah. And for me, as we get into the deeper parts of Amos, it becomes helpful to um, to me. Sometimes uh, I like to remember prophets by certain images, that there's an image I would connect uh, with that prophet to help me remember, or maybe a word association. Um, and as we get there, uh, think about that for Amos. I think each of these will help you uh, kind of move forward going, all right, that's, that's what that prophet's theme was, or that was what that prophet idea was. Um, so whether it's the idea of like um, uh, the ripe fruit or a plum line or maybe like a lion, um, th- those become these images so you can go Amos lion okay now I remember what that was about um, and, and maybe start doing that as you go through the prophets good, it becomes a yeah. helpful way to, to remember them uh, and then you get, as you get to the New Testament um what to make of a story where Jesus uh, goes to his hometown. We don't get a whole lot of context, but everybody seems to not really uh, want him there and kind of reject him. And then he turns out his disciples with instructions about rejection. And so what is it, what does he want his disciples to find in these towns? What is he hoping for? Or um, what does he want his disciples to connect with as they go to these cities? Because I think it's part of the teaching of, of what God's heart is as well as um, what they they should find in these cities. And so, Yeah, that's it for me this week. Thanks, y'all.
1: Thank you.